What's up, everybody? It's Austin Rivers from Off Guard, and I've got some exciting news. Off Guard, hosted by me and my guy, Pasha Hagigi, is officially moving to our own podcast feed. We are now dropping two shows every week. Me and Pasha go way back and talk so much hoops already that we figured it was time to fire up the mics and let you in on these conversations. Every week, Pasha and myself will hit on the biggest stories happening around the league. Tap into the show twice a week on our new Off Guard feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com. And joining me in the studio, my cherry tomato brother, it's Andy <laughs> Absolutely, <Greenwald>! <laughs> Absolutely yeah, not. baby! It's Nathan Fielder and Loki Day. What's up, dog? This is the day I had circled on the calendar. Yeah, you know, this is like, your Super Bowl. <laughs> like the Eagles have the 49ers and Chiefs games. Like, this is the one. Yeah. Oh, man, I wondered why you were making such intense eye contact. With well, me. it's good to you see. Started. You know, the thing is, is that like I got here, Andy was like, "I'm finishing Loki." Um, Please, everyone, leave me and, alone. Uh, mm-hmm. So I watched him watch Loki mm-hmm. uh, as I also flipped through the pages of a brand new book that are selling me on shelves this week. It is Rob Harvilla's 60 Songs That Explain the '90s." It's the sort of book adaptation of his podcast sensation, one that I've guested on in the past, Rob is one of my favorite music writers of all time. He's and, great. And uh, is one of my my favorite coworkers, even though I've really never spent time with him <laughs> since he's been at The Ringer because he lives in Ohio. Yeah. But uh, I, I love Rob. I'm going to be doing Rob's like book release live show on Thursday evening at Terragram Ballroom with with Yossi Salak from Bandsplain and Rob and myself. We're going to be drafting songs from the book. That's awesome. Uh, so, uh, is there anything Rob could do in your brief FaceTime on Thursday that would like have him go down the rankings? Uh, dunk on me. He's like a sneaky tall guy. He's not yeah. even sneaky. He's no, just he's a tall fully dude. very tall. He could um, disagree with our take on Bush's swallowed. <laughs> <laughs> like just right. actively yeah. deny our. In a lot of ways, you and I have been explaining the '90s for longer than Rob. <laughs> Every so we could get very territorial about that. Legitimately. You know? 
800 plus episodes of this podcast have done their best to, in a way, <laughs> explain the 90s. Um, Andy, do you want, so to, obviously a full slate today, but mm-hmm. there was some news this weekend. Right. I wanted to touch on, first of all, the Coyote, uh, Acme, Coyote mm. versus Acme story. So for people who don't it's know. It's still tender to me to talk about this. It's tough. Uh, it's a, a film that was, I believe. Made. Made. Entirely made. Mm-hmm. Um, starring John Cena. And it is a kind of live action animation hybrid that gets to the the dark underbelly of the coyote's lifelong mm-hmm. sort of war with the Acme Corporation. And, and for folks who aren't familiar with that, that refers to a, a Looney Tunes cartoon that we grew up with, that, that generations of people grew up with, where the coyote, uh, what does he do? He just races around so- the desert, right? I feel like oh, this is. I kind of want to let you, you know, just keep now that hanging I, yourself. Now that I'm here. talking about this, I realize yeah. I know less about this story than I want to, and I want to know more. You sound like me when I was trying to explain the rules of football to my daughters. <laughs> Did you see the the Saturday Night Live the Nate Bargatze thing where he's just like, yes. and they kick the ball, and sometimes it is three points. Yeah, that's what you or were one. just doing. Yeah. So. For, uh, this is impressive because you are an elite podcaster and no one is no one ever argues that. One of the things that you're really good at is taking complicated ideas, yeah, you know, and, and just, just like... Just, them down. <laughs> however, you have taken what is in essence just an existential cartoon war between a roadrunner yeah. whose erasure from your description was horrifying yeah. and, and a, a coyote. coyote. Yes. The coyote often employs, um, you know, dumbbells and rockets from the Acme Corporation. Yeah. I believe in its quest to end the life of the Roadrunner. The Roadrunner, however, stays a few steps ahead. He of- often does, and you know that's a pretty that's a pretty complete summary mm-hmm. of, of that Thank conflict. You. And you maybe would think if you're listening, like I got it. I feel like I've gotten to the bottom of that. But mm-hmm. you know, Warner Brothers, in all of their their wisdom, they mm-hmm. were like, I think there's more meat on the on the bone here, mm-hmm. and decided to make this film. For $70 million, starring a uh, wrestler and an actor, John Cena. And, you know, we're, we were mere months, I think, away from, from possible release of this, of this cinematic masterpiece. And it was announced that this would go the way of Batgirl, where Warner Brothers has been notorious for writing off, essentially, these completed films and saying, like, it's easier for us to not release it and take this sort of elaborate tax write-down. So we'll, we'll take a smaller guaranteed loss and a tax write-down instead of risking what we perceive to be a much larger loss. And doing the marketing and promotion and distribution that required, you know. And, and in the case of Batgirl, and, and I don't know if it's the case with Looney Tunes, also saying, like, this would also potentially harm our efforts to rebrand a valuable franchise. Yeah, and, and the Looney Tunes IP is right there. You know, It's right there. I know, yeah. I mean... I, I personally was disappointed to hear nothing back from them about my Porky Pig spec, but... The story that I wrote in which Elmer Fudd is red-pilled, and which didn't take much, by the way, you know, and then runs for Congress. Yeah, Elmer Fudd, where were you on Jan 6? Elmer Fudd <laughs> is disappointed by Lauren Boebert's behavior. Yeah. We'll leave it at that. I think you could actually just put Elmer Fudd in the morning show mm-hmm. next to Chris, next to Bradley. You Jack. could put Elmer Fudd in Congress. <laughs> What do you mean? Like, I'm supposed to be like, that guy doesn't fit. That's right. Um, So, so last week. No, I was just, I think that, I don't think it's, it's nothing about, it's not funny when a movie gets like put in the trash can and I I feel bad for the people who worked on it, right? Yeah, there's, there's two stories here because last week it was apparently, not only did they announce they were 
burying the movie, yes. but it they didn't, by all accounts, inform all the creatives involved. They found out it, like on social media it, and stuff. Yeah. There's there's been some suggestion that the heads of film for Warner Brothers didn't even see the final cut before this decision was made. It was ugly and it was it was messy. And I think there's two stories here. One is I think the one you were alluding to, which we should lead with, which is. God, that must be disappointing. It is really crushing for anyone in any creative endeavor or any professional endeavor to have their work disrespected, shunted aside, buried. I mean, all you want is the chance for someone. Made fun of by two dipshits on a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably (laughs) lower on the list, but um, you never know. That's legitimate and that, that, that matters. The secondary story is the PR disaster that has sprung out of what seemed, what, you know, which I guess... could be seen as a financial decision Mm -hmm. because the way this was handled and the way that the industry covers itself now or expresses itself through social media or whatever else, this became like uh, a social justice story. Sure. Freedom for the coyote. Yeah. And suddenly people are caping up being like, how dare Warner Brothers continue their disrespect? But it sounds like it kind of worked because it kind of worked. As of last night, uh, I don't know if Matt... Bellany broke this, but I first read about it in Matt's Sunday night column, uh, what I'm hearing for Puck, where he was just like, they're going to take this this coyote to market and see if anybody is interested in the coyote versus Acme movie and see if Netflix or Amazon or some other streamer or somebody wants to take take it on and, and release it. Which is great. If It's a made movie. If somebody else wants to pay for it, they should have it and let people see. Let the marketplace decide. Right. Um, Absolutely. I, I'll say a subset of our, I think, of our coverage of this is just to have people, it's just going to be heads up for this. There's such a massive industry correction that's already started and yeah. we, we've been referencing it. And we have lived, not just us on this podcast, not just you, the listeners, but people in the creative community as well, have really lived in uh, relative times of plenty for the last 10 years of the streaming expansion and an assumption that Everybody gets to make a show. I'm sitting here as a, I won a lottery. I looked under my seat and I had eight episodes on basic cable. You know, like there were a lot of opportunities for people to make a lot of shows and to exist in the marketplace in a certain way because it was 100% a seller's marketplace. That might not be the case anymore. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing this this correction filter through the creative community in pretty, some violent, okay, not actually literally violent, but um, emotionally uh, violent spasms. Yeah, uh, it's just not the same. I place. do. I do take with note that mm-hmm. you know when we were kind of coming up in the world. Yeah, that the the real like uh, caused the not and they weren't even caused to celebrity because like they weren't really like that popular of of causes. But the kinds of things that people would uh, lose sleep over mm-hmm. whether or not they were going to be released or whether they were going to be released in the 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 way that the filmmakers wanted it were like. Billy Bob Thornton's director's cut of all the yes. pretty horses with Daniel Lanois' music or Kenneth Lonergan's Margaret, you know, like mm-hmm. it was like those were the things that we were really trying. Like, how dare you get it, over the finish yes. line? And this is this is like the real story of the coyote and the Acme Corporation. You know, we don't always need to find through lines through an entire podcast where we talk about disparate things, but it, it is kind of relevant for the shows we're going to be talking about today without stepping on any aspect of our conversation about it, like the curse feels like something that might not get greenlit 
in Q4 2023. Maybe, yeah. Uh, I'm not saying that's a good thing. Yeah. I'm just saying that's something to consider. And it's one of the reasons why I think I might feel more, uh, have a healthier appetite for tomatoes than I might otherwise. Well, yeah. And, and I have, I actually, I, I actually have a, a very direct response to that question. So table that for when we talk Yeah, we're tabling first. it. And when we get to Loki, it's like, um, that was a lot of money spent and a lot of hours on moving one chessboard piece three squares over yeah. for a movie. Yeah. Like that calculus of, we can just fill this space that used to be a, meanwhile, with a $200 million television show, I feel like that time has come to an end as well. Uh, do you have any comments on the Marvel's uh, box comments. office performance, <laughs> sir? Was my silence <laughs> deafening sir? over the weekend? Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I still, I'm going to see the movie. But I'm you're just, a completist. I, of course. Well, also, you know, we, we've been talking a little sideways about it. I, I, my feeling about this is is kind of the same. This is... There were not to do a victory lap, or and I told you so. We were not alone predicting this, yeah. but two things have clearly come to pass that I think some segments of the marketplace, including some segments of the Disney Corporation, were in some denial about. One, this movie was going to be the rubber re- meets the road moment for the Disney regression for the Marvel correction. We're recording this Monday morning. It's I think it its weekend box office tally was forty four million dollars, mm-hmm. which is eleven million dollars less than the Edward Norton Hulk movie. Yeah. Um, do you think Edward Norton's somewhere yes. somewhere in Brooklyn? Edward Norton was like, is is that is are, am I the hero you need? I think Edward Norton is like, you should have used my draft of the Marvel script, which he just wrote in his spare time. Um, it is a two hundred million dollar movie before marketing. Mm-hmm. This is a huge loss. It's the lowest. The, the idea movie. I think I read in in some some assessments were that it would need to make seven hundred million to start showing a profit. Jesus, and I think it's also worth saying that like us talking about the box office is in no way we haven't seen the movie we are not dunking on the quality of the movie some of the things that i've heard from people who have seen the movie are actually kind of affirming it's not too long it's (laughs) charming it knows what it is great the lights went out in the theater when the film started (laughs) nicole kidman said um I hit I hit the ratio of cherry coke and coke zero it's vanilla coke okay but thank you i appreciate it um but the bigger thing is this is a sideways spinoff of a TV show that what they is? tried the, the Marvels, Marvels? Okay. that they tried yeah. to pass off as an important movie event, and the arrogance of that, and the assumption that that was going to work, and that anything they said was going to work would just make upwards of seven hundred million dollars at the global box office is a fuck is fucking insanity. It's insanity, mm-hmm. and I think it's deeply unfair. And I, you know, I'm sure there, I'm sure the the more um, Boberty corners of the internet are having a field day with this, but like, I don't even I, know if that, like, if, I, if that was what I think that was a big fear is that the, that the like sort of more incel wing of right. the comic book community would be like trolling this movie into oblivion. And I don't even know if that happened. Well, I don't, I think that the trolling usually comes when they're, it's good when they're losing and it's winning. Yeah, right. And then they're like, no, we have to kill the rotten tomatoes on th- this. Yeah. That said, like, it's, it is not fair for, Brie Larson and Amani Villani and, and uh, Nia DaCosta and Tiona Paris to bear the burden of the failure of the right. Marvel Cinematic Universe. Right. They were set up, man. It's not fair. The the A-B test, the the sort of what if of of what would have happened if if Brie Larson and 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 everybody involved in this movie had been able to promote it. And by the way, uh, it's Iman Villani. I'm sorry. Iman Villani. Uh, if Brie Larson and the cast had been able to promote it, I'm curious right. to know how much better it would have done. Well, on starting this weekend, they were, and Brie Larson 
posted on Instagram a photo of herself in the uniform that looked like a proof of life image. Uh-huh. Yeah. She didn't look super thrilled about it. I also just think we have been living in this weirdly inflated, whether it's the financial bubble or cultural bubble, but like every piece, everything written about this show exists. Movie. Uh, sorry. Well, there it is. Yeah. But a lot of the coverage of the movie, even in the trades that kind of know better, have been writing, like just cutting and pasting from the same playbook. And they say like, the movie starring Academy Award winner Brie Larson and Iman Vellani, the breakout star of the TV sensation. I'm like, Ms. Marvel was not a hit television show. Right. This is not a comment on its value. I'm glad that show was made. It was better than almost everything else they've made for television. But she's not a breakout star or something that wasn't successful. Mm -hmm. But we were just like, okay, sure. Yes, we were just taking what they were, we were catching what they were pitching. We were buying what they were selling for so long. I just think maybe it's time for a... Yeah, I mean, it's like the stock market was during a couple of years, like from 2020 to like, right. you know... 2020, good year. Uh, well, it was a terrible year, but but like the <laughs> stock market bizarrely was yeah. was very like vibrant. You know what I mean? It's like the idea that a certain kind of stock should be at, you know, 300 or 500 mm-hmm. or $800 a share or something instead of maybe a more realistic price. The same thing goes for these films. And it the fact of the matter is, is that for all the promotion that they tried to drum up for this thing from starting it as like this kind of daffy sci-fi mm-hmm. comedy mm-hmm. to then trying to pitch it as like a kind of an Avengers Coda film uh, that was much more about action and much more about this clash between good and evil. I don't really think anyone ever got the impression that seeing the Marvels was essential viewing. No. You know, and and we won't get into like what we already know about like the post credit stingers and stuff like that. But I think I mean, we've been I have a lot to say about yeah, that. I, well, and we haven't even seen the movie, no. so why don't we wait and see the film? Maybe we'll do the killer in the Marvels on Thursday. But should we talk about Loki since we're talking? Yeah, Marvel I don't know. Already? It's up to you. We've talked so much about Marvel. I didn't know if you wanted to do a palate cleanser, but then I wasn't sure if the curse was the palate cleanser that you were looking for. Let's do. Let's just let's get through Loki okay. and then let's talk about something else. The, the, I uh, the, I did a, a quick little uh, recap. Mm-hmm. Of of this episode, just in case you were confused, because I know that mm. you often stare longingly at the screen, mm-hmm. just like not quite understanding the intricacies of tra- time travel. And it is con- it's confusing for me. I am passionate, however, yeah. about debates about free will. <laughs> That's really the only story I'm interested in in yeah. narrative fiction. So I was glad that this became that as well. So this uh, concludes the second season of Loki. The episode was called "Glorious Purpose." Mm-hmm. Uh, Afterwards, or on the night I believe it was released, mm. Tom Hiddleston crashed into the Tonight Show. Did um, he? Not crashed, but like you know, he made a run for the Tonight Show to so to promote because they've obviously haven't been able to do that over the last couple of months, and was just like thus concludes. And this will be spoilers for Loki in case anybody hasn't seen it. Thus concludes my run as Loki after 14 years. What a journey! I got this job when I was 29. I'm 42 now. This is what he said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, okay, pal. Okay, but I think that like you know, fool me once, but like, I, I think looking at it in that context, that this is a sort of final statement on this mm. kind of bizarre character within mm-hmm. the context of the Marvel films where it's sort of starts as like an irritant, becomes a villain, becomes like kind of a homie and is now just a full-on hero and God mm-hmm. uh, is an interesting transformation and is a testament to Hiddleston's charm is essentially what I wanted to kind of talk about mostly on the positive side here. Do you want to say the elephant in the room, that that mirrors closely my development in relation to Grantland and the Ringer? 
you started out as an irritant? Do you think you've you've ended in a heroic place? I think so. Others <laughs> might find me more have, irritating. Do you still have room to grow? Yeah, <laughs> your yeah, turn. It's true. I I have. I when have True aged, Detective season four comes, you will see where then you we'll are. Know. Okay, fair. Please go on. Um, I mean, look, Loki trips through time. He gets his doctorate in physics along the way and over centuries. Yeah, all that's all this all over centuries. And he's basically searching for the moment that's going to save the multiverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, the crux of this series and this season comes down to the small decisions that affect everything. Um, mm-hmm. He is faced with a dilemma, which is essentially to let Sylvie kill Kang, to kill he who remains Kang uh, in this. And thus let a, a billion Kangs bloom. Yes. Or kill Sylvie, mm-hmm. save Kang, save the sacred timeline. This is the trolley problem, right? Yeah, Exactly. Is it? Um, and, you know, the, the Sylvie thing is, is complicated, partially because he's in love with her, partially because she is him, mm. uh, which we didn't really touch on very much. No, because it's creepy. Yeah. And instead, he figures out a third way, which is to become a god of time or a god of stories, as I've seen it referred to, and live a lonely life of sacrifice for something greater than himself. Mm. He, he pulls all the branches I of didn't time see together. That was, I didn't see that on the bingo board as an option. I thought it was an effective ending. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say this about this episode. By far, mm-hmm. my favorite of the season. Without question. And the reason was it had some fucking pace, baby. We moved quickly through this gobbledygook, like, time travel stuff. One of the problems with the season this, this so far had been, like, how slow and serious everyone was taking this completely made-up bullshit. Mm-hmm. And, like, it would, it, they would say something and everybody would just be like, oh, no, what about all the people oh. on the timeline? Oh, those oh, are people. No. And like all this kind of like, I, I mean, c- candidly, I wonder whether or not they just didn't have enough story for the amount of episodes that they did. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just nodding. So just watching him zoom around yeah. and be a star. Yeah. Be a big star. <laughs> you know? And he's, he's delightful in this episode. Hilston is wonderful. He gets to be physical. Mm-hmm. He gets to be comic. He gets to be emotional. Mm-hmm. He, uh... Like uses the sort of stupid time slipping stuff to great comic effect and also great dramatic effect. Yep. I thought it was a showcase episode for him, and I thought it was a really it did a really nice job. I am I am I back in on Marvel? No, but like I thought it was like by far the best episode of the season. There is no question that it was the best episode of the season, and I don't even mean that as a backhanded yeah. compliment. I would like to take it one step further. I'm glad you singled out how good Hiddleston is, because he is. And he's playing a character, as he apparently has been tracking. He's been playing it for 14 years. And it was a culmination of that. He's a fantastic actor. He's very charismatic. And the show is not just because he's the title character. It's nothing without him. However, the reason I also liked the episode mm-hmm. was because for, I don't know, I didn't count it, six to eight minutes in the middle, there is a scene with him and Jonathan Majors playing the version of Kang that's cool. I have that next. And for those six to eight minutes, when they literally paused and just swiped left on everything else on the show and even made fun of everything else on the show and even did the thing that sometimes writers, like they can't help but tell on themselves when he's just like, yeah, none of that mattered. Mm -hmm. And they're just in a room and they're talking to each other, and they're acting their asses off, and they're compelling, and they're interesting, and they're funny, and all of a sudden, my God, what's, what's, that, what's that music? Is that Alan Silvestri's Avengers theme playing <laughs> in the back of my head? Is he talking about Secret Wars? Is he talking about the fact that something might matter again? And it might matter again because there's a clear 
no pun intended, but maybe there should be intended, Endgame? Is he talking about it? Or, or am I caring because these are characters and actors that can hold up, like Atlas holding up the arc of the sky can hold up all this nonsense and make me care? I don't know. But briefly, we touched the flame again, and I was happy. When Majors... When they could, when they get back to the he who remains, and mm-hmm. then he is pulling the primal fear thing of making fun of Victor Timely's way of speaking, mm-hmm. I was just like, ah, shit. Yeah, you know, you're like, also, oh, this is why they cast him. Yeah, this yeah. is a guy worthy of being Very, the villains. Like, like scary, charming, interesting, like Su- offbeat, surprising, surprising, able to go toe to toe with Hiddleston, mm-hmm. kind of dangerous. And in that moment, I'm not paying attention to the things I've been paying attention to on the show when my eye my eyes leak. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why, why are they in Doctor Strange's living room again? Why is everything purple? Why are there chalk equations and fake books? Like, what is all of this nonsense? Who cares? Two people are talking. Yeah. I do wonder whether or not they effectively made it so that, like, Kang is now, like, a footnote and an afterthought in this entire thing. Well, that was the... Okay, so the strange things for me, the takeaways were, one, so the TVA is now the MVA in the sense that now it is the multiverse authority. Did they rebrand? They didn't in the show, but when they're like, when when Mobius says all the Kang variants are fine, which suggests now that they're looking at Except all the timelines. Except for the one that pops up in Ant-Man that he makes That's 616, which yeah. is the, the basic MCU. Look at us. Who would have thought? Well, I... <laughs> You know, I, I think I delivered quite an interesting soliloquy on 616 back in a <laughs> podcast we did in 2014. Which podcast number was that? Uh, <laughs> 616. <laughs> um, so it seems like they're watching that now. It would be funny to go back to podcast 616. Just grab and it. And then start with 617 like in a different reality. Oh, like time slip back into that with what we know now? But just have that be podcast number 806. When you say interesting, <laughs> who, for whom? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Didn't you just do... Timothy Simons' pod where that you guys were doing podcasts about the earlier episodes of the podcast? Yeah. So, I mean, like... Well, that works with me and Matt and Tim. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I, you know, that's just a different vibe. You could do that on How Long Gone. Jump back. <laughs> You're a busy guy. I get it. Um, so, that was one thing. The second thing was, if you're talking about, like, outs, the potential out I saw, which threatens Tom Hiddleston's, you know, future slate, is, oh, Loki's the god of time now. And he's the one who's remaining. That's what I was wondering. Of Secret Wars, because holding it all together. One thing that they've always kind of done with the Hiddleston Loki is because he is so charming, mm-hmm. they, can, uh, they can bootleg him out towards being a villain again every once in a while. Yep. And, uh, you know, he saves his friends. Lifelong friendships that he's deep, had. Deep friendships. That uh, friendship him. is definitely the thing that Loki cares about the most. Mm-hmm. Um, but look, he made like, he has a life of usefulness now, I guess. And uh, it's going to last a very long time. But who knows what sitting in that chair does to somebody, you mm-hmm. know? We don't know. You know, we, you, you can't know until you're in the war room. It, it is, that was my takeaway, which it, in a rough way, it gave them some, it's the run pass option. Mm-hmm. It gave them some optionality here yeah. in terms of we have now... I guess I, I, what I would say is I left this, this season being like, Kang doesn't feel like so much of a threat. Now, I don't know what you do with the Kang Dynasty as the name of one of the mm-hmm. films coming up, but seeing how Marvel is kind of operating right now, I would be surprised if that movie was written. Well, also, 
Endgame was originally called Infinity War Part Two. Yes. I mean, these things are easily. I think changed. Captain America, the new one, has had three titles already, right? And and one was called Uh Oh, wait, are we sure? Yeah. I, I they have options now going forward, which is you know good for them. We're always rooting for the corporation. Um, I promise you, Hiddleston is not done because he's obviously taken on a lot more for the team. But if the conversation inside of Burbank HQ is like, okay, really, like how many Coyote versus Acme's would it cost for us to get Evans back? Mm -hmm. Um, He basically like joked about that in the Jimmy Fallon appearance, apparently. I didn't watch the entire thing, I have to be honest. Um, I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> uh, he said, like, Jimmy Fallon was like, well, if this guy can, like, time time jump, like, could he go back and see Tony Stark? And Tom Hiddleston was like, ooh, what a good idea. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Jimmy. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> Jimmy. Jim. I, um, yeah. It, look, nobody needs to hear us, but, but sorry, you're listening, I guess. Thanks, sponsors. Talk about the the missteps of this show, or as a franchise, or even Marvel on TV. But it's just interesting. Like this episode had some weight, it had some stakes, it had some pace, it had a good heroic performance. Charitably, the other five episodes did not matter at all. I, they didn't matter at all. But what they had to, the reason they existed was to sort of do this this very, uh, I think, awkward dance of proving its value in two different categories. One, as franchise movie connector, which is what we're talking about. Maybe it, it did to, to whatever degree. But the other one is justify its existence as a TV show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, basic, basic TV show math is uh, you have a community of characters that who care about each other and you grow to care about. And over time, we parasocially understand what they mean to each other. And we are part of that web as well. Yeah. So from episode one, you and I were making fun of the fact that Wunmi Misako's great actor's only job in the show is to be like, the timeline is people. Yeah. Those are people. And then five episodes, but but the work of it was important to humanize things that previously hadn't been humanized. So that by the end of this, we're like, ah, I sure will miss Loki's lifelong friendship with Owen Wilson and also Sylvie. And also, I want to say Casey, but that's the work of the TV show. Yeah. That never landed for me. I mean, th- this this is something I was thinking about over the weekend after I watched the episode was just how stuck in the middle these things are, these mm-hmm. Marvel series are, where there's part of it that feels like... It, I, I think there's nothing more boring than a feature script that has had two hours added onto it um, to basically waste the time before you get to the inevitable third act of mm-hmm. what would have been a really good script. And if you had done Loki as two films... Um, frankly, maybe even as one, you know, movie, yeah. I think it would have been pretty interesting. Uh, sp- certainly had the technical chops and the design chops and the cinematography was good. The direction was good. The music was fantastic. Like yeah. the production design, the creativity with Miss Minutes and all these different like wrinkles that they had all great. I think that would have made a good movie. Maybe two, if you wanted to. Yeah, it would have. Or as we've suggested before, Tom Hiddleston and Owen Wilson's Adventures Through Time mm-hmm. is essentially like a totally awesome Doctor Who ripoff idea that they could have pursued. I even see the bones now of a good place slash workplace comedy with the TVA. Sure. With the people left behind. You know, like you could definitely do something like what's funny about the TVA and have it be like a 30-minute workplace comedy. But, but that's that's the essential flaw of the show, which is just like, ah, th- Loki found a third way that saves the TVA. 
the bureaucracy we've grown to love. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah, I know. I They're know. just like life pruning meddlers in suits. I don't care. Yeah. I, look, the real Tom Hiddleston's going to be fine. The larger Avengers story that they are furiously writing and rewriting is, I don't know if it's going to be fine, but it's, it's, on, it's in process. Yeah. The real, real question mark red flags for the next year and a half are Thunderbolts mm-hmm. um, and uh, the other Captain America movie, um, Armor Wars. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. What worries me, again, that's concern trolling. I'm not worried. But like what, I, what I'm curious about is what are the conversations like within Marvel over the last few weeks and, 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 what, and how are they speeding up now after the box office uh, fate of the Marvels is written when they're looking at the Thunderbolts movie. So much talent involved. Series. What's that? Thunderbolts is a series. It's a movie. Oh, it is? It's a feature film. Oh, I thought it was a series. No. I thought, I thought Armor Wars was a series that they turned into a yes. film. Yes, and Thunderbolts is a movie. Okay. And has always been greenlit as a movie, which is insane. And there's a lot of talented people involved in it. Mm-hmm. Like Jake Schreier directed it. I'm blanking on his name. You had him on the podcast who wrote... Oh. Um, yeah, it was, and it was written by Lee Sung Jin, who did Sunny. Yeah, who did Beef. Who, who did yeah. Beef. I can name actors, and I like a lot of them. Sebastian Stan, Florence Pugh, David Harbour, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Mm-hmm. Wyatt Russell. Wyatt Russell. I like all those actors. But it's, it's the Marvel's problem, maybe even more so. Like, these are not movie... This is not a movie star movie. And if Marvel isn't in the movie star business, and it's no longer in the, like, we must see this as part 36 of the larger puzzle business, what is it? And I don't... My concern is because of the stakes of all of this that they Disney has a billion dollar hole in its schedule and its budget for that year that they're gonna they're, they were assuming they would make back from the Marvel movies. You can't go in the opposite direction. You can't do what we were saying. Maybe they have done with Echo, which is like let's just deal with the facts on the ground. Let's deal with what we have. Mm-hmm. Because if you strip it down and it's like a fun, almost like Suicide Squaddy B movie under the Marvel umbrella, because quote unquote they do that now. Great, you lower, you raise the floor, but you lower the ceiling. I don't think they can do that anymore. So all I'm saying is, you know, Kelsey Grammer better get used to being in the uh, makeup chair again because I think they're just going to start throwing bigger and bigger and weirder stuff on these already slated movies to make them feel more important. And I don't think that's going to work. The rosier viewpoint of this would be they're now off until uh, late summer. I believe this is now the new release date. And then Deadpool 3 comes out with Hugh Jackman. Yep. And that makes a bill. And then by that point, you probably are full on into Fantastic Four and X-Men speculation. And it starts to get like a little bit more, again, optionality. There's just more more stuff on the table for them to play with. And maybe if it's like some of this stuff like falls into the minor leagues. And you know, Eternals too, it's sitting right there. Um, It's just weird. It's just weird how how the conversation has so radically changed since the watch episode 616 I know. about Marvel and stuff. That, I mean, they'll go back, they'll look at that at the TVA and they'll just think about, wait, that's when we lost Greenwald and Ryan. We should time slip back. Should we move on to the curse? Yeah. Okay. I purposely did not ask you what you thought. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do the blind taste test with you. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to set I, it up? I get, yeah, sure. This is the a show on uh, from Nathan Fielder and, uh, and Benny Safdie. It's on Paramount Plus slash Showtime. One of the, the great storied networks of our mm-hmm. of our lives. Uh, this first episode is directed by Nathan Fielder. It was created by Fielder and Safdie, and it stars 
uh, Fielder and Safty, but most importantly, Emma Stone, mm-hmm. along with Corbin Burnson. Mm-hmm. And it's about a newish couple. Uh, I think they've been married for about eight months, I think. They say just just a year. Just a year. Yeah. Just a year. Uh, a newish couple who have an HGTV show called Flipanthropy. Well, they're making a pilot. Yeah, they're, they're, they're making their pilot. Flipanthropy. Uh, and it is filming in Española, New Mexico. Uh, where they build passive homes, which are environmentally friendly, reflective structures that look like they mirror the surroundings. Mm -hmm. So uh, the episode follows uh, the hot-tempered and small-dicked Ash as he snaps during news interviews, tries to take back money he gives to kids selling sodas, and pleasures his wife, played by Stone, with a dildo named Steven. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Saw that. The most important thing to know is that... You already said it. uh, Steven. Yeah. They're dealing with a curse... That is put on them by the aforementioned child who was selling sodas. That it's essentially this very funny scene where Fielder's character tries to like do a good deed on camera by giving like he, D- Dougie, the safty character who always wants drama, tells him to go. Yes, go go up and buy some sodas from this kid in the parking lot of a dollar store. Yeah. And he uh, only has a hundred dollars and gives it to the kid and then asks for the hundred back because it's too much and that he's going to go get twenties. And then the kid's like, "I I curse you." Uh, and the other sort of major B plot is that during a local TV news interview, Ash and Whitney, the character played by uh, by Emma Stone, um, they're they're confronted with the idea that Wit's uh, parents are actually slumlords mm. in, in Santa Fe or in in, in in Santa Fe. Yeah, they're sort of in like in a made up community. Yeah, and that, um, that, that that's being gentrified, and they are either the they're either helping or they're yes. hurting. That that she's they're confronted with this, and that then Fielder's character like kind of snaps, mm-hmm. and is it, it kind of it flips out a little bit, and in exchange for the like mm-hmm. sort of binning of that tape of of no longer running that interview, he is going to give this this reporter a, a, a hotter story about a local casino. Yeah, it is an incredibly dense episode of TV, <laughs> just, and I have a lot to say about the filmmaking and the show itself, mm-hmm. but I just I can't wait any longer. Um, I think I like it. I, I mean, it's hard to talk about without the larger industry thing that we were saying, which is, boy, what a funny thing we just got handed. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty psyched that that they were given the opportunity to make this. I think the the risk taking in terms of like the not just the subject matter, but the way that it tells the story, and and I and by the way it tells the story, you know what I'm getting to, but I also mean the like cutting between the camera stock for the HGTV stuff and the quote-unquote real stuff. Mm-hmm. Emma Stone being on television again, because I just think she's one of the most magnetic and um, fearless actors we've got. Has she ever done anything else besides Maniac? Not that I know of, no. Um, that, that's, that's pretty much what I was referring to. And um, just all of the details that make this completely unique from... Benny Safdie's characters, uh, watch and rings and hair combo to the extras that they cast and the faces they put in the background and the way they frame the shot. So even in that um, on-camera interview you're talking about, there are these just like just like Harley dudes just wander in the background yeah. and it just feels unlike anything else you're going to see on television. And there are moments that are so funny and there are moments that are so surprising that it is 100% worthwhile. Yeah. I also felt some. I felt I have two two potential planks of criticism. Yeah, and I'm intentionally. No, I like I like the head and the heart here. I'm alighting. I can tell that's where it's. I'm alighting one thing, which is the like the fundamental Nathan Fielder project. I am not comfortable with. 
I know but that, literally, literally not comfortable with. Like you, it makes you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable, yeah. and I think that's intentional. Yeah. Like you know, it's and in this episode, there are not one moment, not two moments, but like three to five moments where he does the thing that he does in his other shows, where it just keeps going. Mm-hmm. And to see that in a fictional, uh, a more fictional version was at times really interesting. Like in the new, in the um, the local news interview when he loses it and it's just, you know, excruciating, but it's excruciating with consequences because he, as a character is doing it and people are responding accordingly. And I appreciated that. There were other times when I found it less uh, tolerable. Mm-hmm. I would say that my criticisms generally all couched under the umbrella is I'm going to watch two, another episode of this. This is not, I'm not out. Uh, I'm leaning in. <laughs> not too far, not near the tomato plants, but you know, in enough. Um, here are my two criticisms, and then I would like to hear your take. Sure. As a as a more um, temperate uh, viewer of this content. One was, they made the show, Safdie and Fielder made the show with A24. They came in and they were like, this is what we're making. And they shopped it around and Showtime eventually bought it. And good for them. Clearly, other places were like, we have some notes. Or maybe we have some guardrails. And they were like, we don't do guardrails. I, I, I would humbly suggest that maybe some guardrails are fine. Uh-huh. Because, as you said, there are five to six like incredible ideas and scenes and moments of collision. Does Cherry Tomato Brothers go under the category of... We're separating that out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there are also 19 ideas in this pilot. Mm-hmm. So I feel like for as much as I celebrate their artistic freedom, I felt like choosing five to six of them maybe would have been better. The other larger point I have, which might be a whole other conversation, is that for as clever and as savage as some of the satire is, broadly, I feel mixed on the idea of five percenters making fun of one percenters. Okay. Which is to say the satire of this is of Tesla driving, gentrifying, nouveau yuppies who bring like who bring coffee brands and jeans into a community where people are like we live in tents right and the specificity of people that high up making fun of people who are slightly higher up feels a little more inert to me than a larger more pointed satire or one that maybe was about the people in the tents so I, do you, I don't know you if, feel I don't like know if I'm articulating even though myself. it's like the safties or it's 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 Benny and it's Nathan mm-hmm. Fielder that they are still somehow punching down? No, no, no. I think okay. they're punching up. But I think they're punching... I feel like they're on one of those... What are those cranes that have like the um, the accordion cranes? Mm-hmm. Like they went up, up, up like window washers. <laughs> so they're on like the 18th floor and, they and they're punching people 22. in the executive yeah, suite. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's, my, th- that's just a feel thing. That is not a criticism of the project or the show because as someone who also rests his head every night on an accordion crane on the east side of Los Angeles, I'm like, yeah, they fucking got that jeans brand. <laughs> you know, influencers suck. Like, I get it. I'm, I yeah. am on board. I am the audience. So I am broadly asking the question about the efficacy of that satire or the relevance or essential nature of it at this moment. But I would do that in a, you know, that would be one paragraph in my review of the first four episodes. I've only seen one. Right. Okay. Let's table the, like, what is this show about part? And yeah. let's just, ju- I want to hit one thing about the making of it. Because yeah, please, I think it's please. really interesting. I, this was originally conceived as a 30-minute drunk comedy. This is my, yes. Um, I had so much fun, quote unquote, watching this show, trying to define what the 30-minute comedy of this would have been. 
versus the essentially like what if Alan Pakula directed a reality show <laughs> dramedy of it. Yeah. And like I wonder, I don't know whether or not it's Whitney's uh it is Whitney, right? Mm-hmm. It's whether it's her family life has been added in or what the like like is the 30 minute oh, yeah. m- mocking of HGTV house flipper shows I would find probably to be like small potatoes for Nathan Fielder, but like would definitely check it out, watch it, you know? He doesn't do small stakes though, as you know from the rehearsal. Like it just keeps building and building and building to the Mm -hmm. point where it seems to encompass like a basic, like reality itself seems to be questioned. Mm -hmm. And I can see this show kind of going in the same direction. Um, And I think they just took their time. I don't know. I, I feel like all the elements were there. Like, I think the family would have been... The family's played very broadly. Yeah. The family gives us the tomato harvest. So I feel like the toma- that that's comedy. But there's, I feel like the, the Safdie showing the burn victim uh, trailer <laughs> is... Third degree. <laughs> is, is love in the third degree. Yeah. I mean, that's comedy. To me, it's like it was all in the editing, and that's probably what they realized. That, like, when it is totally comedy... And that's also... That's the fine line between what he does anyway, yeah. right? But, like... The you have to go. I can't believe what you did. You have to go fix this, which happens right after the the the, the love to the third degree thing. Everything that comes after that, with like how long and menacing his drive feels, yes, his experience at the shelter, the long speech where Safdie sort of coming on to Whitney, and then like the through the keyhole while they talk about it. That feels like the stuff you find in editing, and then you add, and suddenly your running time is forty. Sure, and you find those moments, and you add, and you add, and I, I'm happy. I don't I don't know what the other version was. This feels more, this is interesting to yeah. me. Because it does push past some relatively broad or, it's never easy comedy, but uh, I guess that this sort of ties into what I was saying about who it's targeting. It it does push past that or seem to have a, an inclination to push past that. I, I just want to also say that just like, Emma Stone's just such like a brave performer. She's fucking uh, great. You know, for... Her face. It would probably... She could probably get away with having like a relatively Sandra Bullocky career, you know, to the mm-hmm. extent that anyone is capable of that. She is where you do romantic comedies, maybe some awards bait dramas, mm-hmm. but her just being like, nope, I got to be Frankenstein's monster in Poor Things and I have to be. Have you seen that yet? I haven't, but like I gather I'm from psyched. the trailer that that's what that's about. And she, being in Maniac and being in, in you know, being in, in this is just like a kind of courage that I really admire. And and here's the thing that I want to say like super positive about her but also about the project which is like I have now seen and not as many as others because I tap out but like the scene where Nathan Fielder does the thing and then keeps doing the thing that past the point of good manners or whatever what I needed in my life was Emma Stone's face also. Yeah. That changes the calculus of all of it and in that interview scene which is I want to be clear about my own limits here like excruciating, but incredibly compelling. Yeah. I did not think that scene was inessential or like gotcha or whatever, like because I'm watching her face and it is unbelievable. Yeah, my, my read on, you know, it's funny you should say that because uh, I watched that scene and I was just like, Nathan Fielder knows exactly what he can do as an actor. Like, yes, it's and, a it, great and point. it is kind of limitless, but like Nathan Fielder, very few people would be like, I understand essentially how I look, you know? And he looks menacing in that scene. And he is leaning into the, like, I see Nathan Fielder and I feel like he's really, really funny. He can also be, like, a little bit creepy. 
And in this, he's kind of like dialing up the like, what if this character had like a hair trigger temper? And what if that was obviously rooted in a like feeling of inadequacy that he has, you know? And, and do you know what that moment was for me in that scene? It's not even when he loses it. It's right before when they're being pitched softballs about what they do yeah. and they contribute. And he's just like and answering they, them like a serial killer. But he has these rehearsed lines yeah. that they were fed. And there was a one particular choice. I wish I had noted it down. When he almost like he inhales some of the words and then exhales some of them, he pauses and his cadence is so odd. But that's that's like a, that's like a crafty relief pitcher just dialing down the velocity at the right moment. Like yeah. he he's considering exactly how to sound unrehearsed and normal. Yes, and he's rehearsing that. I mean, that is his psychology, right? And I I thought that was a great touch. It's also when you have somebody at the center of a story who doesn't really seem to care at all about how they come off. Mm-hmm. Anything is possible because I cannot think of that many actors who would have done the I am pleasuring my wife with a dildo named after another man mm-hmm. as I jail onto the floor. Mm-hmm. Like that's not something you see a lot of guys do on on screen. When you choose your audition sides <laughs> at the actors academy. Hi, uh, yeah, so Chris, I'm from Philadelphia, I've been acting for for 5 months and <laughs> I'm going to be reading uh Asher from the from the curse. Yeah. I brought my own props. Is that okay? Uh, do you want to talk briefly about Corbin Burnson and, and the cherry tomatoes? Briefly. This is this I, is the this is the sort of like only Nathan can do this stuff where it's like you're watching the show, you're like, oh yeah, like what is reality? Reality TV, isn't that funny that they mm-hmm. call it that? And you're going, and it's like oh, the reflective homes that show their community and the community is not much I'm to like see. You're like, all this stuff, and then you're like, oh, that's his that's his dick mm-hmm. it's real small yeah and then it just keeps going and going and going and then he's like i too have a small penis let's urinate on these tomatoes to make them and then hug <laughs> i mean what <laughs> this is this is maybe what separates me from people where i'm like and 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 i i i want to be clear like i'm not trying to be like i don't think as, you're but, being no, but i don't but yeah. i also don't want to be like a stick in the mud like we as a culture need people pushing the envelope, and I am not the final arbiter on where the envelope should rest. I was saying, for me, this episode and this show, maybe the pilot, I'm not saying the show, didn't need the micropeni. That was a plot line that I was like, oh, I don't know if we needed that. Maybe I'm wrong. And to hear you talk about it, you are you are um, like a, like a uh, time loom. You are... <laughs> Pulling in these strands. Yeah. yeah, let's be clear. Like either Loki at the end of Loki or Corbin Burnson in front of his tomato patch, you are pulling at things <laughs> to find resolution. Yes. And I appreciate... Yeah. Um, shout out to the four people who will get the, because, the both. Yeah. Because if you, if you truly want to satirize the kind of broken engine inside like this like influencer gentrifying stage of capitalism, like... Yeah, maybe all the men just have little dicks. Like sure. maybe that's the problem. Yeah. And they're and they're trying to prove something. Like that's I see it. But, but. I, I will be very interested if and hopefully you'll stick with this for at least a little longer. Oh, uh, I, I have to. I yeah. I will be very interested to see time slippage wise, like what the conversation is we're having in five weeks. Me too. And I also Because I am I imagine knowing the rehearsal, knowing mm-hmm. Even even the Safties work, like, I feel like it will be a completely different conversation. I also just want to say, and Benny Safdie's great. What a year this guy's having as an actor. 
He's really good. Um, I, I also want to hold ourselves accountable here and realize that we've just come off of like a relatively barren five, six week stretch of being like, God, I wish they could just at least make a good doctor show because then we would have something to watch. And then this appears. <laughs> and we don't get things like this much anymore. We are not going to get very many of these things for the next few years. Not without Emma Stone. Even with Emma Stone. Like, I, I do think this is a sign of like, this is a pre-2023 relic. Because but, I think this assumption that A24 and Fielder and Safties with a movie star can get something made, I don't know. I don't know either, but the reason why I, I have so much respect for what she is doing here mm-hmm. is that so many people, big movie stars, have gone to television in the last five to seven years. And with all due respect to, like, say, Nicole Kidman, is essentially like, oh, like, you could have just done TV. You know that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you, if you wanted to be in Big Little Eyes or or Nine Perfect Strangers, like, those shows were, like, there to be made, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, when you watch Reese Witherspoon in the morning show and you're like, so, so you wanted to just make a, a workplace drama? like well, that, it, that's, it, But it's not just that. I think... And again, Emma Stone I, is like, if I'm doing this, we're fucking going to the moon. The, 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 I think that there's something to be said for, and I don't want to disparage the, the professional choices made by any actor, especially at this moment, but there's different goals that people have for their careers, and there's different, um, like, uh, you know, winds that are blowing through the industry that people are responsive to. And one thing that I think just is incredible about Emma Stone's career is the way you're describing it and the way we're experiencing in it is that she, and there are other actors like this too, um, does not seem to care about social media or what she should do or brand protection. Mm -hmm. She's like, I am going to walk out into this storm of a wild and unpredictable creative life and then we'll see. I'm going to say yes to things that move me and work with people that excite me. And that's the goal. Um, Reese Witherspoon built a billion-dollar brand with what she did over the last right. 10 years. I, which one is the right way? I don't know. But, like, for me, seeing what she's done on TV is a part, of the, Hello Su- projects. It's I, part of the Hello Sunshine sale. Or yeah. Nicole Kidman being like, I have a monetizable brand and I'll keep working forever. Sure. That's great. And so I don't want to, like, pit them against each other. I don't mean you were either. I just like it when Nicole Kidman makes also makes Lars von Trier movies. You know what I mean? And yeah. I, I, I kind of, I admire yeah. Emma Stone for being like, if if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to work on a show that's going to probably take months and months and months to shoot and it's 10 hours long and I'm going to expose myself and be vulnerable in a lot of weird ways, like, it's going to be artistically worth it rather than, I, you know. Look at her IMDb. What's the one for them? Yeah. What, what's the most recent one for them? No, Zombieland like Zombie 2. which is fucking good. Yeah. <laughs> that That's pretty much it. So I think that's cool. But I also think it's important for, like, I don't know. I just feel like because of the the, the cul-de-sacs we found ourselves in for the last few weeks, and even as recently as 20 minutes ago talking about uh, talking about Loki, I want to say that me being like, I'm not so sure about micropenises on this show is a totally different conversation the than me was. being like, yeah. I don't care about the TVA. I, I get like, it. Like, I am, this show is fucking weird. It is challenging in some ways and dopey in other ways and really interesting and compelling. And they are doing something that they wanted to do. And we are getting that unfiltered. And I can have my critic hat on and be like, oh, I'm not sure if I would have made that choice to drop trow there, but <laughs> that's just me. I'm not making this show. So I am on board to see where it goes. It is, uh, I, the, to me, the best place to end the conversation for the about the pilot of the show is just that Nathan Fielder freaking out in a director's chair is of a piece with the last two shows he made. Sure. Him in a chair playing a character 
with Emma Stone reacting next to him is new. Is really, really interesting. Yeah. And I agree. Similarly, a sign of someone who doesn't want to just do one thing, and that's cool. Uh, why don't we take a break and we'll be back with Rob Parvilla? This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. All right, we're back. It's me and Rob Parvilla, the host of 60 Songs That Explain the 90s, which is expanded into 90 songs that explain the 90s. And now it's TK songs that explain the 90s, although that's not the official <laughs> designation. Rob has adapted this podcast into book form, which is uh, sort of a full circle moment as Rob, I know Rob as a writer and editor, one of my favorite music writers ever. And the book comes out on Tuesday. You can get it wherever you get books. Rob, thank you for joining me on The Watch. Thank you for having me. I remember coming on this show when the show was either brand new or did not yet technically exist. Yes. This is absolutely it's a infancy. full circle moment. Yeah. That's um, right. We are going to stop at 120 songs also. Yes. The TK element has been very amusing to me historically, but we are actually going to stop because our friend Sean Fennessy <laughs> will have me killed if I don't stop. So that seemed like a good place to this stop. This is actually exactly where I wanted to start. I want to keep this conversation pretty general. People can... Should listen to the podcast, obviously, if they aren't already. If you like the watch, you will love this podcast that Rob does. And they should definitely buy the book because 
there's something kind of magical about seeing if you're really familiar with episodes, it's a great almost reference to have some of Rob's opening monologues. Were they translated verbatim to some extent, or did you? T- how much did you tweak in in the book writing process? There's a lot that's verbatim, right? Like the first step, you know, I had like 600,000 words of raw material. And my first thought is like, oh, I'll just send along those Google Docs Hit and we'll print. print them up. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, <laughs> I've always meant to figure out what the exact physical dimensions of that book would be if it was like bigger than my car, yeah. <laughs> for example. It's just, it was just, that was just not happening. I do think that every episode, there's like a chunk of text, like a riff or whatever, that's translated pretty verbatim into the book. It was designed as like a companion to the show, if you're familiar with the show, but I was also adamant that like it be accessible if you've never heard the show before, right? Like I do think it hangs together. And I do think that the challenge, what was fun about it was like making these songs make sense together and sort of stringing them together into a coherent sort of chapter theme, you know, whether that's sellouts or like villains or adversaries or whatever. Like I just tried to find fun ways to get these songs bouncing off each other in unexpected ways. Did you find, first of all, if you would just hit print, that would have, and you called the book (laughs) Song of Ice and Fire. I think that would have been (laughs) an absolute blockbuster for you. Uh, I have pages. He doesn't have pages, (laughs) but I absolutely have pages. Someone's able to do two things at once. Um, I was curious about the process. So in the book, Rob has taken all the songs that he does or, you know, the songs that you would know from listening to the podcast and he groups them thematically, as he said, around these ideas. And I was curious how sort of difficult that process or easy that process was because, you know, there's a certain malleability to that idea where you can probably fit a pavement song or an Oasis song or a Third Eye Blind song into multiple sections. But how Catholic mm-hmm. were you about like, okay, no, no, this is definitely in this section. Yeah. I th- There were multiple options for everything, but my goal was like every chapter ends with a list. Of, every chapter begins, sorry, with a list of 12 songs. And I wanted people to read that and be like, what the hell? Yeah. Like this doesn't make it. And then end the chapter being like, oh, okay. Like fine. You know, like I, I tried to set in each chapter a challenge for myself to make these songs make sense together. And some of that is, you know, some of them, the through line is me, my personal experiences. Like these are the songs that just happened to soundtrack, you know, my absurd suburban teenage hijinks or whatever. But in other cases, like, of course, I'm, I want to talk about women in rock, Mm -hmm. you know, like quote unquote women in rock and the ways that the artists who are always being lumped into that category, who are in that special issue, were like fighting against it, you know, and it's cool there to sort of put Sinead O'Connor you know, and TLC and Alanis Morissette, like in the same sort of category, but let them fight their way out of it and sort of celebrate their individuality and sort of get at like why that was always such a silly grouping to begin with, like a very 90s concept that felt ridiculous at the time, but feels even more ridiculous now. You know, some of the groupings make sense initially, like sellouts, right? Like it's easy to talk about Green Day, you know, and Real Big Fish, you know, and maybe even Coolio and Ice Cube, like their audience expanding to the suburbs to white people, you know, yeah. and the frustration that they had with that, that they were speaking to an audience that wasn't their intended audience, you know, who didn't really understand where they were coming from. And are we caricatures now? Are we pop now? Like there's many ways I think to think about selling out. And I wanted to do that. And so some of the some of the groupings make sense immediately, but some of them hopefully become clear, you know, the more you read. 
So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the 90s in general. Um, you know, you and I are around the same age. Okay. I think that we were like, you know, children of the 80s, but came of age mm-hmm. in the 90s. And that's right. Uh, obviously became professional music journalists in the 2000s. <laughs> so yes. you could say that any one of those eras would have been equally viable for you to create like this kind of podcast about. And who knows, maybe you will about a different era. Yeah. But I was wondering how making this project, which is now a podcast and a book, has changed your relationship to those, not only the time, you know, like that that point in history and that point in cultural history, but your own biography like to to kind of hmm. excavate like all these memories and and contextualize them about a third eye blind song or about a uh, about a, an oasis song like how does that change how you remember that period of your life no totally cuz i when i started the show i didn't expect to talk about myself at all you know i didn't expect to tell personal stories about like my teenage years or my life now you know there wasn't i hadn't intended any sort of memoir aspect you know because i'm not inherently interesting as a person but what i found just in the course of doing the earliest episodes the feedback i was getting was just people telling me their personal experiences you know of hearing the, you know one headlight on a road trip and it meant so much to me like I just, me telling, you know, modest stories, you know, about my mundane suburban upbringing just sort of brings about, you know, those same memories for the people listening, right? You know, it's the old thing of the more specific a song is, the more universal it feels, you know, sort of applied to a podcast about those songs. And so I think over the course of the show, I got a little more comfortable. I never want to overdo it. I never want to make it about myself because I'm still not that interesting. But I do think that a little bit of personal connection to a song, a little bit of nostalgia, you know, a little bit of sentimentality, you know, can go a long way and can sort of harmonize, you know, with the critical approach, you know, with the more trivial sort of pop-up video, like frivolity, like goofiness, you know, like I wanted to have a mix of tones and a mixture of approaches. I think... I don't know what I expected, but I guess I was a little worried at the onset that not all of this music would hold up for me, you know, that I'd go back and listen to like the Spin Doctors and be like, oh man, this is terrible. But no, I was like, I listened to the Spin Doctors. I'm like, yes, this was a great (laughs) choice. It's my first CD ever. You know, I was, it was truly validating to realize that all of my opinions and preferences were correct at the time I was right about everything, you know, and that's a great feeling for me to, to confirm the greatness of my own taste. You know what I'm saying? Did you find that along that, those lines, did you find that you actually did shock yourself where you were like, Oh my God, this is actually like an, an absolute banger versus like, you know what? I actually think that this, <laughs> we, we can leave this in the nineties. <laughs> there's not as much I want to leave in the 90s as I thought there would yeah. be, right? I think you would appreciate like sugar, right? Like I I stumbled across File Under Easy Listening, dude, come on. you know, a week ago. And that's a fantastic record, dude. And that's in like the first 10, 15 CDs 
I ever owned. I put so many of those songs on mixtapes. You know, that that album was like the bassist for several garage bands that I was in briefly, you know, in college. And it was like, that's a rad record. Yeah, it turns dude. out you know, playing like, like Bob I, Mold is hard. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it, it's extremely hard. Yeah. I think I think one of my early bands, like the dude who led it, had an earlier band, or it was an album that he just called Mold. That's M-O-U-L-D. <laughs> like he just very explicit homage. You know, to the person you know who who meant the most to him, and so yeah, I I do think that it all, some of it is dated, you know. But even the really dated and cheesy stuff, you know, I have a huge amount of sentimentality for that as well. I think the episodes that worried me at the onset, you know, like your achy breaky heart, mm-hmm. your tub thumping, your macarena, you know, I was, I was trepidatious about those. Cause like, Oh man, I'm going to get this song stuck in my head. Like people are going to be so annoyed to be reminded of it. And some people were, but I do think that with 30 years distance, like I can sort of see the humanity in Los Del Rio or Billy Ray Cyrus, you know, now that they're not ubiquitous, now that they're not being crammed down my throat and there's not this inherent resentment, of how omnipresent they are. Like you can sort of just hear those songs as song songs again, you know, and see those people as just normal people. Maybe not Billy Ray, but most of the other ones. Yeah, you right. Know? You can kind of just hear the text instead of the celebrity right. movie. Exactly, exactly. As you've been making uh, the pod and doing the book and just being alive, like I'm sure you've noted that <laughs> the 90s are kind of back, both in terms mm-hmm. of fashion, but... Everything from <laughs> Olivia Rodrigo to a, a right. huge amount of like underground indie rock bands and who reference, yeah. you know, everything from Shoegaze to Madchester to, uh, I, you know, Hum. <laughs> you know, like there's Hum, a, a, a lot of the it's bands awesome. from that era are particularly sonically relevant right now. And A, did you see that coming? I guess cyclically, yes, <laughs> uh, would be the answer. But I'm curious how you feel about that when you kind of like put your, close your laptop at the end of the day of living inside of Bill Clinton's America and then you look outside right. and it's like- I'm still there. And we're still, we're still going, yeah. Yeah. The cyclical nature definitely is part of it, right? Like it's inevitable. Like when we were in the 90s, the 70s, we're breathing yeah, down our days necks. And you know, Mike Watt. And, yeah, right. Exactly. Dazed and Confused is exactly it. And it's just, it's very unpleasant to realize that like the era that Dazed and Confused depicts, which felt like ancient history to me at the time I was watching that as a teenager, like now that's even farther away. Yeah. You know, the 90s are farther, we're farther away from the 90s than we were from the 70s. And it's like, I don't want to feel this old. I really don't. Olivia Rodrigo, I use all the time as an example, yeah, of like pop punk, especially. But like, it, it's invading pop, but more to the point, like rap, right? Like SoundCloud rap, mm-hmm. like Juice World. you know, like the way that new metal has appeared that the like the grime song i forget what it's called we appreciate power or something like there's so much cutting edge like hyper pop like a hundred gex or whatever that band (laughs) is called like they just they sound like every new metal hit from 1998 playing simultaneously you know and i i still i can't work out if the young people if the kids listening to that now are doing it ironically to some degree, if they're sort of aware that it's kitsch and that it was uncool in 1998, or if they actually just think, no, this like the Deftones are the greatest band that ever existed, and everyone has always thought this. Dude, you know, I latter. don't know. I think it's the latter. You think it's the latter? I do not For think the that Deftones, a lot of bands sure. that sound like the Deftones are doing it ironically. I think they're like, this is <laughs> this is the source material right here. 
Um, that it's very hard to make that music and not mean it. I get what you're saying. That yeah. makes a lot of sense to me. I, I mean, <laughs> selfishly, I like it. I, and I love a lot of these bands that I feel like are basically like, oh, this band sounds like seaweed. That's cool. Like, <laughs> I liked seaweed <laughs> in 1998. Yeah, and yeah. Now I get a new band that, that sounds like it. But then, and I think also I have to acknowledge the fact that like, some of the more cutting edge sounds today, like kind of, I think I may have aged out of being able to appreciate them in some ways. Um, sure. Like really cutting edge rap probably misses them. <laughs> I, I am like an avowed, just like Griselda fan. And so like, I think that's where I'm yeah, happiest. Yeah, is. yeah, yeah. I just decided that this DJ premiere kind of Dusty Fingers sound in rap is what I like and that's okay, you know? Absolutely. And then with the rock we, we stuff- We are not the target audience for Yeet. I'm not, for example, and you know what? You know, like it that, would be weird if we were. And I'm glad, I, I'm glad I lived long enough to 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 say that that's the case, you know. And I, it, yeah. rap's a funny one because rap is was well, even when we like probably moved to New York in the 2000s, and I, I remember mm-hmm. getting to the city and getting the voice and looking at the listing yeah. section and seeing that Big Daddy Kane was playing SOBs. And thinking like mm-hmm. I had just been struck by lightning. I was like, what do you mean Big Daddy Kane is playing <laughs> SOBs? Big Daddy Kane is like one of the greatest five rappers who ever lived. And right. I can't believe I get the chance to go see Big Daddy Kane play live. And I didn't know that Big Daddy Kane played like every six weeks SOBs because like he needed to make a <laughs> living. got a residency. And That's right. Yes. Like, but when you, what, what, like in the early 2000s, like rap was still only like 25 years old. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't, we weren't at this point where it had gone through so many different regional sounds and cycles and rises and falls with major labels and now into like more almost like independent distribution. It's just so interesting to like think back and like uh, this this podcast was obviously weirdly well-timed for all of this. Yeah, I didn't intend that. I went to see the Wu-Tang Clan Nas De La Soul arena tour a couple months back. And it was fantastic, right? But like it was, everyone on stage was acknowledging like the nostalgia of it. There were so many jokes about like, hope you guys got babysitters, you know, like, you know, (laughs) we're so old now, 50 years of hip hop, you know, it's like, oh no, you know, it's it's, the the generational divide is very stark and very real. Yeah, Nas is like, remember just only eat half an edible to start, you know? (laughs) That's right. Yes. Nas is just like, please. (laughs) This is called New York State of Mind. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you a little bit, you know, so much of what Andy and I have been talking about over the last couple of months throughout this like summer and, and, and into this period has been the nature by which we kind of experience a lot of the culture and media that we consume now. But we, we obviously talk mostly about streaming platforms. We work for Spotify. So yeah. I if that's a, a disclaimer we need to make. <laughs> but one sure. of the things I'm always struck by by listening to the pod is how tactile that era was. And how uh, kind of um, considered you needed to be about your consumerism. You know, you you had to really like kind of have these internal debates about what you wanted to spend $11 on and or $15 at strawberries, (laughs) $18.99, which is, you know, like it was really, it was a tough time. Um, Yikes. But you had to really, really think about it. And also radio played a major role. So you had basically this, outside curation system of, of mm-hmm. these DJs deciding what you were hearing. And, you know, I mean, we went through just in the period of time that I think you're making the podcast about that you saw like the end of vinyl, the sort of mm-hmm. dominance of cassettes, 
the dominance of CDs, and then the beginning of, of file sharing starting you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s. Yeah. Do you think that the way you used to consume the music had an outsized impact on how you felt about the music? Of course. I remember us talking about this, you know, last when I was on the show when it started about how, you know, if you bought a CD for $17.99, you were going to listen to it 400 times, whether you liked it or not. Absolutely. Because you're going to get the money out of it. So I bought Ferment by Catherine Wheel, right? Because I wanted there to be a song as good as another song as good as Black Metallic, right? And there really wasn't. But what what's better than Black Metallic? <laughs> Black Metallic. Uh, but, but every CD you bought, there was that fraught moment where you put it in and you're like, praying that it will be good. You're like rooting it. You're rooting for it. And you do have this emotional and also financial investment that I do think contributes to the idea we still have of the 90s as tribal. Yeah. Right. But there's there's all kinds of physical, you know, manifestations of how we listen to music that I feel so old trying to convey to young people now. It's like, and as you said, like going into Camelot Records with 20 bucks, you can buy one record. The absolute dominance of MTV, right? You said the radio, but also MTV in the 80s and the 90s. Whatever they said was cool was cool. You know, they said Winger was cool. I thought Winger was cool. They said Winger sucks now. Nirvana is cool. You know, like, hey, guess what? Winger sucks. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Overnight, you know, and just the the physical objects, like the the tape cassette adapter for your CD player in your car, like the black tape. Of course. That you then connected to your, you know, the only way I used my cigarette lighter in my car was for that. They were all, even like the dial-up noise, right? When you did finally get online. Like Napster existed, obviously, in the latter stages of the 90s, but I don't think it's till the early 2000s where it destroys everything. Like even computers felt very physical and tactile, you know, right until the end of the decade for me. Maybe I was not an early adopter, but there was just such a physical... We didn't have laptops, yeah. (laughs) I could not carry my hard drive from place to place so I could listen to my hum records, you know, anywhere (laughs) I wanted. And so I I think that absolutely affects, you know, I, I go back and I listen to that Catherine Wheel record now and I can still picture myself... You know, this weird sort of queasy feeling of, do I like this or not? Like, is this good enough or not? You know, like, did I make a good decision? Like, I do have that feeling and I can still, I can still hear that anxiety, you know, my anxiety at 14, having invested in this product, I can still hear that in the music now, you know, streaming it along with the billions of other things that I'm streaming at any given time. I was wondering whether or not so Rob, uh, when I when I first met Rob, he was uh, working at the Village Voice. Uh, he was a, an editor at their music section, and uh, I was I, I often I was working at Kim, so I would come over and see him and, and my friend Zach Barron, our friend Zach Barron, uh, over at the Voice. Uh, what was yeah. it? Scratchers? You guys used to go to the bar that was yeah, the, yeah. that was the big one. Scratchers. Uh, and it's not bad. Yeah, and um, <laughs> I Rob oversaw for for several years the Paz and Jot poll, which for people who don't know is a uh, a critic survey of the year in music that usually within for for the critics holds a lot a lot of sway. I think sometimes <laughs> if you mention this in in casual company, people just stare at your forehead. But Paz and Jot was essentially like the mass critical kind of collective decision making about like what mattered and didn't matter or what was there was a there was it gave the year a sense of hierarchy and uh, Mm -hmm. i loved to read it i loved to contribute to it and i loved to get enraged by it and (laughs) you're now kind of coming you're you're in the middle or, or you're in the midst of this project that 
it, it gives a, an era a different kind of order, but I was I was wondering if you were going to make your peasant job of the 90s, <laughs> how much different would it look from the songs you actually right. selected to do podcasts about? Wow. You know, like Paz and Jop, you know, it's always in the back of my head, right? And I'm I'm curious, I'm fascinated by how critical consensus shifts, right? Like the Arrested Development record topped the Paz and Jop poll. Mm-hmm. I think it was 1992, right? The one with Tennessee. I think Tennessee may have been the song of the year as well. Like I'm always really interested in what stands the test of time. Not that Arrested Development haven't, but I don't think they're deified. You know, they're not held with the same, you know, deification that you get certainly from like the Wu-Tang Clan or Tribe or any of these records that I think they beat at the time. So from a critical perspective, certainly I'm really interested in how opinion shifts or doesn't. You know, on a personal level, yeah, it's I when I listen to Smashing Pumpkins, right, which was probably if I'm picking one, my favorite band in high school, you know, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, Siamese Dream, like that's my shit, honestly. And that remains my shit, you know, (laughs) and I have a certain amount of critical, I have a certain amount of critical perspective now that I did not have when I was 13, you know, and playing air guitar to the Soma guitar solo or whatever. I know a little bit more about Billy Corgan than I wish I did. Quite frankly, you know, like I, 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 there was before, I loved them before Pavement and I loved them after Pavement, you know, but now I listen to Smashing Pumpkins with the knowledge that Pavement, another favorite band of mine, do not like these people and vice versa. Yeah. Like I get more context as I go and some of it is personal and some of it is critical. Some of it is professional, but I guess I was relieved that like, it's not that I can totally turn off all those other parts of my brain, but I do get like a visceral teenage feeling, you know, when Geek USA kicks in or Mm -hmm. whatever, right? Like I don't, it's not that I've ruined these songs with context, you know, or useless knowledge or like all the takes that I've absorbed and all the hundreds of thousands of words that I've read and that I've written about all of these people, your Pearl Jams, your Nine Inch Nails is whatever. Like I can still put myself back in my buddy's car as we drove around, you know, listening to Pretty Hate Machine or whatever. I can still hear that record that way. And I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, I mean, I I was wondering whether there were songs that you wanted to do or thought about doing, but were like as okay. So like for for example, like I would love to do a a, a Good Morning Captain Slint episode with you. <laughs> I don't think that that yes. would chart. I don't think we would do a lot of numbers with that one. <laughs> with all due respect to Slint, who were one of the most like influential They'll underground rock bands of the nineties, like. I don't I don't mm-hmm. know how much they have carried over into the 2020s which is just wild to even right. consider cuz in my mind that record is is as vibrant and it feels as like as important now as it did then but like totally. I, yeah that idea of basically personal canon versus uh, mm-hmm. um, a canon for the people and a canon for everyone to latch on to. <laughs> you were much cooler than me in high school because I, I was aware of Slint 
And I had a vague sense that I should be up on them and I would be a much cooler person if I was into them. But it took me, it took me a while. Like, see, there's a record where I don't have that personal teenage connection, yeah. connection right? Like I, I first got into that record and finally got it, you know, cause Spin Magazine kept telling me I had to. And finally I did, you know, and, and sometimes that works out all right. Sometimes I hear things that way and they remain with me. But like, I do remember... It was like the day I graduated college and I don't know, I was just hanging out at some dude's house and he hands me neutral milk hotels in an airplane over the sea. And it was like, this is the greatest record ever made. Yeah. Like it's just, it was just like a total, like, have you ever heard of the shins Natalie yeah. Portman type moment? And like, you can't, there's no replacement for that, right? You know, all due respect to the magazines that I have read and worshipped and wanted to write for all my life, but like some sort of personal connection, you know, where even it's another person in a room with you physically handing you a CD, like that recommendation versus like the rock critic, yeah. you know, Mount Rushmore, you know, being transmitted to you, this knowledge that you should have, like that's always been a big difference to me, but I'm trying to think of an Someone's episode. Someone's cool older brother will will still always trump Robert Criscow. The cool, yes. All due respect to Bob, to but that's dean. absolutely yes, right. right. The <laughs> dean, yeah. the cool, the cool older brother, you know, is is a is a revered entity. Him being like absolutely. some guy being like, you should really listen to the fall. I only listen to the fall. <laughs> is like way more enticing than somebody being like. Here's a, my favorite of 25 fall albums that came out this year. Mm -hmm. You know, like, yeah. That's right. It's a pretty daunting catalog. Yeah, you need a personal in there, I think, to really wrap your head around that. I, I don't want to, to wrap up, I don't want to give any, way, any industry or state secrets away, but I was just curious whether or not if you were going to do this project again, would you mm -hmm. rather move forward in time uh, to the, what, be it the, the 2000s, the aughts or whatever, or the 10s, or is right. there a, an attraction to almost going more deeply historical and doing a 60s or a 70s that you, maybe you don't have a personal attachment to? That's sort of the big question, right? Because I, the aughts, the 2000s, you know, I do not care for that term, first of all. Like, I don't want to say that <laughs> 700 times or whatever. But like, I, I keep wondering if the 2000s hangs together coherently yeah. as a decade to the same degree as the 90s and it feels like it doesn't and i'm trying to figure out if that's my personal you know teenage sentimentality i'm trying to decide if there's something to the pre-internet of the 90s you know the idea of the monoculture you know which the internet explodes but i think about the 80s a lot like i was a kid right i was you know in 1989 i was 12 years old you know and i grew up on mtv and i can certainly reel off like 680s hits right now that i would love to talk about for an hour apiece i think the question there is like the feedback that i get you know what i perceive to be this show's target audience are people like us who grew up you know who mm -hmm. who were kids in the 90s who were in high school and college in the 90s. And in order for that to be true for the 80s, now I'm talking to like slightly but older people. Yes. Right. You yeah. know, you, you got to think about the demographics of it all. Like I'm truly gratified when I do talk to like even a slightly younger person, you know, who was a little kid in 1999 and sort of received Eminem as like a funny little dude on MTV and you couldn't tell anything you, he was saying and you're the better for it. But I, I do think that the target audience for this is people who are kids 
then. And so what I'm wondering is like, do you go backward or do you go forward? Like what hangs together the best as a decade? Like what's still impacting music right now? Like I, I still don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to figure it out real soon. I want to you know, hear right? the, the 2000s, if only to hear you have to come up with 120 variations of I had three beers at Magician and then went to the Mercury Lounge <laughs> where I saw this band. <laughs> well, some lower I can do side. that. <laughs> every, every, night, every night at pianos was totally different. Yeah. You, know, just you never knew what you were going to see. That's right. You never knew where you were going to walk up the stairs or stay on that first level. It was, yeah. just, it was a total Was mystery. Ryan Adams inside the bar or outside the bar? <laughs> Who knows? Um, all right, Rob, thank you so much for joining me today. Rob's book is out on Tuesday. So by the time you hear this, you, you, you will probably be able to purchase it. Uh, I highly encourage you to do it. If you've never heard the podcast, subscribe, check it out. But you will still love the book. If you have heard the podcast, it's like the podcast comes in Technicolor now. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Rob and I will be joined by Yasi Salek on Thursday night at the Terragram Ballroom to do That's right. a book release of sorts, but we're going to be drafting songs from the book. I'm psyched, man. I, y- Yasi has never met you in person. She's never met me either, but it's, you know, and it's been a while since you and I have been in the same room. So I haven't, yeah, I haven't seen you be, in person in a long time. Yeah, I'm excited for the show, though. I have no idea. I'll be very curious to see, like, the crowd. You know, I mean, I, I know too. that it's sold out, me. but like, I, I'm, I'm very excited <laughs> to see like, who is like, I need to see Rob do this in yet another <laughs> format. Yeah. It's going to be, just going to be my mom, you know, in 200 empty seats that my mom purchased <laughs> to ensure mom. that this event would be a success. Yeah. Our Villa Thanks plus 90. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. This is a robust no, guest it's, list. It's awesome. Uh, I can't wait to see Rob and I can't wait to do this show and, and Rob, congratulations on the book and the podcast, man. I love it. Thank you so much, dude. It's great to be here. I really appreciate it. Talk to you soon. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th, and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.